Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name's Tim. And my name's Marshall. Still. Still Marshall. Not changed. I've not legally changed my name yet. Or just casually. Or casually changed. I mean, I guess you can, right? You know, we're going to be talking today about some of the bishops and the popes. That's true. Isn't it interesting that they change their names? It is. I think when we become ordained, we should have the option of changing our names. Yeah. I don't know what I'd go with. It just sounds it just sounds like a thing that I would Would it have to be a pope name? Or maybe it could be maybe it could be a famous because we're Protestants, it could be like famous pastor name. Mm. You can call me Charles Spur- Charles Spurgeon. the second. <laughs> Charles Haddon. <laughs> Sinclair. Um yeah, I don't know. That that could be a cool thing. Martin Lloyd the second. Martin Lloyd the second. Ooh. Of course with those guys you'd probably be like the fifty thousandth. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> So while we're on this topic, mm-hmm. let's talk about papacy. Okay. Because it's sneaky. Mm. Not underhanded, behind closed doors. Well, I guess it is kind yeah, of behind closed doors. Yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. You ever seen the throne? No, actually, you know what? I don't want to. It's fine. Just continue. Okay. So sneaky mm. in that it kind of builds up over time. Right, right. And that means when you look up the papacy, mm-hmm. history on the Pope, you are going to see this long line of men that were the secession of popes, yeah. very well documented, mm-hmm. very well recorded. It's going to start with Peter. And it begins with Peter. In fact, when you, if you want to do a deep dive and just keep Googling, when did the papacy begin? When did the papacy begin? It's so well established that it began with Peter that it's hard to find anything else. Mm-hmm. And we've made this statement a couple of times that when we talk about the Catholic Church, we're not talking about the Catholic Church as we know it today. Right. Which would, because of the Reformation and other things, be identified most with the office of the Pope. Right. Um, yet I think people are going to find that contradictory when they dig down deep and say, well, there's always been the papacy. Right. So let's explain that a little bit. Mm-hmm. All right. The first thing to note is this: a good chunk of these men are labeled pope after the fact. Right. Yeah, they weren't called pope or papa or whatever. Right. In their lifetime. But in the era that we are talking about now, the middle three hundreds, mm-hmm. middle of the fourth century, that starts becoming a thing. Yeah. Papa is a or papas is a Greek form of father, mm-hmm. which was being used in the Eastern Church in Egypt. Uh, and it starts to become used in Rome. And particularly being used for the Bishop of Rome. Yeah. Now, a bishop, scripturally, is just an overseer an elder, a pastor, mm-hmm. the head of the church, however it is your denomination sees this, right? That is the role of the bishop. It's just another name for it. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that Rome is an influential place. It is, yeah. And the the, the thing to keep in mind, too, so Pope equals Bishop of Rome. Like those, th- like that mm-hmm. is, that is, historically, that's what it is. Right. We get to a point, and we're at that point now, where the Bishop of Rome is certainly preeminent, hence why we're starting to get these references, of these, these Pope-type references. Mm-hmm. But it was not always a done deal certainty that the Bishop of Rome was going to be the preeminent one, right? When we talked about earlier in church history, you had other centers of Christianity that were... Uh, equally important, I'd say, to Rome, at least for a while. Um, so what they've kind of done is retroactively said, well, every bishop of Rome has been a pope, even though they didn't initially start calling them the pope right. until about the time period we're at now. Right. So Eusebius, mm-hmm. Clement, they were pastors 
in Rome that have now been labeled Pope. Yep. And their time as pastor of that church is now regarded historically as their seat in the papacy, the papal Mm -hmm. order, Mm -hmm. right? They would not have seen it that way, right? Um, We do have... We do have some that come into prominence and become a part of the conversation, but generally at this point, they're still they're still just another guy. Mm. Like when we talk about the major players up to this point, there are really only two mm-hmm. that we've mentioned that are even looked back on as being popes, mm. right? And that would be Clement and Eusebius. Yeah. Uh, and Peter. And, and, and the reason, Peter, this is an interesting one. The leader of the early church was always seen as Peter and Paul right. held these two kind of positions. But there are a couple of times in Scripture where Jesus acknowledges that Peter is going to lead the early church. Right. So the camp of Pauline tradition, him as the leader, just sort of falls away. Um. Peter is thought to have gone to Rome. Mm-hmm. And in the 1970s, so when we say the 70s, we don't mean 80s, 70s. First, first century, <laughs> right. where there would be lots of validity. Mm. In the 70s, there were bones found um, that were verified. They're found in Rome in a church, verified by the Pope. John Paul II to be Peter's bones. Okay, uh, so we know we know that. <laughs> so <laughs> cool. DNA testing has pr- with other things that belonged to Peter. Yeah, no, that's impossible actually. Okay. Uh, but however verified, they were yeah. verified to be his, and thus the patristic tradition of Peter being bishop of Rome, right, uh, has has carried on. Whether or not Peter really spent time, set mm-hmm. up shop, and was the pastor in Rome. Mm. Bible doesn't talk about it. Right. Uh, it doesn't. So so it's... And then after that, it sort of becomes convenient. Sure. That, well, Peter was in Rome. Right. And Peter's the head of the church. And I'm a pastor in Rome, which means I also have really close contacts with the emperor. Mm-hmm. Who has now seen me as a an equal in some ways, mm. a religious leader? Well, I now have political clout. It probably means that I'm the pastor of pastors, right? Right. And yeah. and slowly over time, we are going to see the emphasis placed on the Pope. Mm-hmm. Although at this point, we already see people sitting as Bishop of Rome who are going to start receiving the n- title of Pope. But that word doesn't mean then what it means now. Yeah, I mean, even if you if you go back to what we talked about recently, um, these councils, these big church councils, Council of Nicaea mm-hmm. and whatnot, they're inviting bishops from all over, and they're voting. Right. Right? Uh, it's a democratic thing, and it's not that the Bishop of Rome's vote is worth 100 votes and everyone else is only worth one. Mm-hmm. Right? Where now you have... In the the modern expression, and even early in the in the medieval expression of the Roman Catholic Church, you had popes operating with kind of unilateral power. They can literally just do whatever they want. They say it, and it is so. We're not there yet, uh, but we're we're on our way. Yeah, we're on our way. We are. It's true. All right. So, the papacy. As it grows innocently in the background. Okay. That's it. What else we got to talk about today? Um, just a bit of a bit of a historical context to some of the characters that we're going to be talking about, some of the, the issues within the church. Uh, Constantine, after he dies, um, and he's baptized shortly before he dies, as I, as I think we mentioned last week, mm-hmm. his empire is divided amongst three of his sons. Uh, which soon, okay, and there's Constantine the second, Constantius the second, and Constans the first. <laughs> mm. Just, you know, there's so no, that no one's confused. Just so, yeah, just so everyone can keep in track. So I'll so, try. <laughs> so when I was a kid, because my dad is also named Tim. Okay. 
right? We have the exact same name, except I'm the second. People would call the house and say, uh, is Tim there? And we'd say, which one? And they'd have to describe the one that they're looking to talk to, right? Right. What does that look like when there's four of you? <laughs> yeah. So long story short, uh, they divide the empire amongst themselves, but it doesn't last long. The oldest one is kind of the, the guardian of the younger one and then doesn't want to stop being his guardian once he gets to age. And Wait, there's wars. divided leadership of the empire didn't work <laughs> before or after Constantine? It, it, it yeah, didn't work. So there's a lot of killing going on, uh, killing extended family members, uh, killing one another. Uh, the two remaining brothers uh, are divided on the question of Arianism. Mm -hmm. One is a staunch Arian. The other one is staunchly not Arian. Um, and again, Arian being the idea that Jesus is a created being. Right. And not God himself. Yeah. Right. Um, there's a coup. Uh, by a, a actually German-born Roman general. But then that doesn't last because then he gets overthrown. Like, it's this long succession. Then we get to an interesting character that's worth a minute or two. Um, his name is Julian. Right. Yeah. And he was a cousin of these guys. He was Constantine was his uncle. And Julian would be the last pagan emperor of Rome. And what he decided to do was undermine the church, but he didn't go about it like previous pagan emperors had, right? He didn't mm -hmm. pull a Diocletian and start burning people. What he did is he just kind of removed Christians from positions of power and tried to reimpose traditional Roman religion, right? He didn't try to destroy Christianity. He just tried to kind of remove their ability to have any power or influence in society. So one example is that teachers, to be a teacher— you had to be approved by the state. Right. And to be approved by the state... You had to believe in the gods. Yeah. So it's just kind of a way of making sure that the, the succeeding generations wouldn't be brought up in an understanding of Christianity. Yeah. Um, at but, least in a formal way. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't work out for him no. in a couple of ways. One, there's pushback against a growing, powerful Christian community mm -hmm. that does have leadership roles and rank mm -hmm. uh, under Constantine. Um, the other thing that, so he doesn't really connect well with them, partly because he's firing them all. Sure. <laughs> that causes a disconnect. Uh, but he also doesn't connect well with the pagan aristocracy and mm. teachers mm. because he brings into his paganism a lot of his preconceived notions of faith that are brought up from having been in a Christian environment. And so there's confusion about how he's practicing paganism. Right. So he has this, whereas we see a lot of times, especially when we start seeing the colonization, European colonization, we're going to see this very weird paganism brought into Christianity. But here we see the opposite. Julian mm -hmm. brings Christianity into paganism, and the pagans are going... This isn't what we do. Yeah, this is some kind of weird synergistic thing. Right. Like, yeah. all of a sudden, he's worried about morals and <laughs> spirituality, and he's, he's not talking about, like, monetary gain, right. which is kind of the point of it all, right? <laughs> uh, power, earthly power and monetary gain. But he's, yeah. yeah, so he doesn't really ride cleanly with any camp. no. no. There's one interesting thing that he, he tries to do. In 363, he decides he's going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And this wasn't really to appease the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. This was to upset the Christian community. Because one of the, one of the kind of uh, proofs that the, the early church pointed to was Jesus' prophecy about the temple being destroyed mm -hmm. as a demonstration of Jesus' prophetic powers taking place in that time to say, look, here's this historical event that's directly tied to what Jesus said. And he said it wouldn't be, it, like every stone would be um, overturned, right? And so in his mind, if he could rebuild the temple, that would somehow invalidate Jesus' prophecies. Mm -hmm. So he tried, um, and there was an earthquake, a fire, um, 
and all sorts of other issues that prevented him from being able to do it, which I think is amazing. It's uh, incredible. <laughs> like the, the emperor of Rome sets himself on a building project, right? To make a point, to make a really important point for him anyways. Yep. And he just can't do it because there's these natural disasters and other factors that are just undermining him at every point. Yeah. And so as he did, sets out to reestablish Rome as a historical Rome, mm-hmm. united under its historical gods and principles, he he fails miserably. And actually, many scholars who point to a long decline of Rome mm-hmm. say this comes as the beginning of the end mm. of Rome as we know it, right? So his his idea of solidifying and unifying Rome, he does the opposite. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, he dies, uh, possibly by assassination, possibly a Christian soldier assassinating him, although that's debated. A with javelin at war? Question is, where did it come from? Well, yeah, so he's, yeah. Yeah, he's injured in war, and there's the whole, yeah, there's a whole thing. Anyways, it's a, some intrigue there for you. Um, succeeded by Jovian, and then we don't have to get into all the guys who followed, but kind of Christian emperors kind of come back to the fore mm-hmm. and kind of reassert Christian dominance, really, yep. uh, of the of the ruling class within Rome. So it's interesting to see how quickly it shifts. You know what I mean? So at this point, it seems like at least amongst, and this is going to connect actually to something we're going to talk about later, but it seems as though especially the upper class, the no, the nobility are really fine to just change gears from paganism to Christianity, depending on where the emperor's at. Right. It's kind of just like, all right, whatever, whatever's in vogue, whatever's in vogue. We're good. We're down. Right. And so it, it goes to show that like, well, yeah, that they're, that not everyone who's calling themselves a believer is indeed a believer. And some people, they're going to use whatever means they can to advance their career. And that could be religion in, involved in that. Um, sounds strange to us now where we're being a devout Christian, um, if anything, might inhibit your career. Sure. In a lot of areas. Yep. Um, but that was, uh, depending on who was on the throne, that was not necessarily the case. Yeah. When it, when it comes to worship and devotion, the question of the elite is, what do you want me to say? Yeah. Yeah. Just and tell th- me what you want me to say. Yeah. <laughs> Man, there's some, some p- parallels. <laughs> some <laughs> thick parallels. Anyways, um, okay. So there's a couple couple responses, I guess. Things things that are, are going on within the church in mm-hmm. light of the the recent shift that kind of Constantine brought on, but there's ongoing ripple effects of, of what has happened with the the end of formal persecution and now the advancement of the church as a as a powerhouse. Right. Right. Um I guess the first thing we should talk about, at least in its historical order, is something called the Donatist controversy. And it actually it started a little while back. It started shortly after Constantine. So it's been going on. Yeah, I, I would say think about the way this episode has run so far, like waves on the shore. Mm. Right? We've, we've got to sort of run with a theme and then back up and run with another theme. Yeah, yeah. These things aren't linear. It's not yeah. like the establishment of the papacy. Then Julian comes along right. and then the Donatist movement. Right. right. These things are all sort of coinciding yep. and overlapping. Mm-hmm. So the Donatist controversy is, I mean, it's really close to something we've already spent a good deal of time talking about. Um, it's how to deal with the lapsed. How to deal with those Christians who cave to the pressure. Yep. And much of it's centered in the area of North Africa in particular, mm-hmm. um, which we don't, again, we don't necessarily always think about as an important part of the Roman Empire, but it really, really was. Um, places like Carthage. And that's where some of those regions were where the persecution under Diocletian had been the most severe. Um, and then what happens after the dust settles and Constantine's kind of you know, he's passed the Edict of Milan. Christians can worship freely. There is an election of bishops in Carthage. And the new guy, Caecilian, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I'm going to go with it. Caecilian was accused of handing over scriptures to avoid persecution. And, I mean, he he denies it, of course, but then suddenly there's these two factions. And one faction 
elects a rival bishop who dies pretty soon, and he's replaced by a guy named Donatus, which is where right. we get the term Donatist. Which he even uses. Yes. It, which is something that is very controversial. Right. Because at this point, they had only ever been called Christians. Right. And now there's a sect of Christians yeah. that call themselves the Donatist, yeah. after a man. And uh, there's a group that kind of says, do we need to say more? Uh, I think in a world of denomination, we understand that when a person says Baptist, they they mean a set of beliefs under John Christianity. the Baptist, right? John the Baptist. Oh man, I've, I have had that. I have had that so many times. And you know what the worst thing is? I've had that not only from people who aren't Baptists. I've also had that from Baptists. <laughs> The trail of blood. Okay, uh, that's for a much, much future episode. So d- don't yep. worry about that, folks. We'll come back. Yeah. So you get you get a rival church, essentially, rival bishop, rival church, rival movement. So we start seeing the word Catholic used right. for the first time, right? To identify the original church mm-hmm. from this sect that has broken off of the church. Mm-hmm. The first really great schism. Schism is just an awesome word for a church split. Mm. We should go back to it. Quit talking about church splits. (laughs) Schism. Schisms. Yeah. So the Donatists, the rise of the Donatists. And and it's not like, it's not in everywhere. It's not just like this subgroup Mm -hmm. that pops up. Mm -hmm. Like in some of these cities, there are rival cathedrals being built. Mm. And the Donatists are the taller building, which obviously means closer to God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, they definitely they definitely uh, hold significant sway in certain certain areas, mm-hmm. and and so this starts causing problems because okay, so here's here's again what the what the Donatists were saying is they were saying because the Catholic Church, which they viewed as the inferior church, mm-hmm. had allowed people like Casilian back in, and that many of them had succumbed to some degree during the persecution everything they did was tainted. Right. There's just a level of liberalism that sort of overrode an expression of devotion. So, yeah. So in their minds, in the, in the minds of the Donatists, the, the baptisms done were not valid baptisms. The mm-hmm. marriages were not valid marriages. The ordination of new ministers were not valid ordinations. Their prayers were not valid prayers because mm-hmm. the purity of the church had been violated and therefore it was no longer the true church and it was now the Donatists that were the true expression of what Christianity was supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually gets violent at times between these groups to the point where um, Constantine has to kind of issue an order to say, look, look, if anyone disturbs the peace, the hammer's coming down. And then the hammer does come down. Mm-hmm. For a little while. And then Constantine kind of backs off and, and says, like, okay, guys, like, just just play nice, I guess. I mean, we still don't like them, but just play nice. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's interesting because this kind of schism is something that we're going to see for the mm-hmm. rest of church history. Oh, yeah. The greatest being the Reformation. Sure. Right? And we support the Reformation. We do. Uh, so where's the difference between people breaking off and saying, no, you are no longer the... Uh, the real true church or uh, no, that is liberalism that is destroying the church, which we are going to acknowledge. Frankly, we do it all the time. Sure. um, Even today, the difference is this, it's not a theological matter. No. And, and that's where they are really running into some shady ground of determining themselves as a true church versus another church. Mm -hmm. The issue is over forgiveness. Yeah. Can someone who, in a moment of crisis, made a mistake be forgiven? Mm-hmm. I've said it before. Peter was. Yeah. Peter didn't do anything on the night that Jesus was arrested that the Donatists aren't accusing others of doing. Mm-hmm. He did it all. Yeah. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't even really like express a forgiveness for him. He just leaves it implied. Right. Because he had already paid for that on the cross. Right. And uh, and that that's where I say this is a schism that never should have been. Yeah. The, Donat- the Donatists are 
applying their convictions to other people. The word for that is legalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're applying something above and beyond scripture. Yeah. Yeah. And so they kind of like pick up steam and then fade out. Um, it's kind of like a, a quick kind of bloom and then kind of slowly die out over a couple of hundred years. Um, Augustine, who we'll talk about in a future episode, is, is going to take him to task and, and um, going to be part of the reason why they lose so much steam uh, because Augustine just demolishes them uh, for their wrong views on that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's also talk about something else that's starting around this time and, and is also triggered by this... Um, this new phase in church history where kind of Christians can kind of come out of hiding into the light and that's monasticism. So those Christians who no longer have to live secluded in their cult of not cult as in the occult. Yeah. But cult as in their section of people who believe like mindedly Mm -hmm. and live in communion based off of that belief. Mm -hmm. Christians no longer have to live in these isolated compounds Right. Um, they're free to be active worshipers in a part of society. And one of the things that comes from this is people who choose to go to compounds and <laughs> remove themselves from society. Right. It's like, remember when we were hiding in caves? I miss those days. I, I like that. <laughs> Whatever happened to that cave? Yeah. Now, now, to be clear, like when we think of monasticism now, we think of these great big monasteries and, and there's a, there's a lot of historical baggage that we bring in into play early, early on. Um, these were people, oftentimes even individuals living in extreme solitude. The word monk comes from the Greek word monakos, which is solitary. Mm-hmm. So these people living in, in isolation, right? They, in their minds, they saw that they believed that people were pursuing Christianity to advance uh, themselves and to get places of privilege. Um, it's kind of one of these things where they're almost like, Hey, isn't the way supposed to be narrow? I don't think the way is narrow enough anymore. So I'm going to develop an extremely narrow way for myself and Mm -hmm. pursue that as a means of whatever sanctification, I guess. Yeah. And it, and it's worth saying Christians didn't invent monasticism. No, no, you're right. Right? This exists in every form of religion. Mm-hmm. It predated Christianity and Judaism. Yeah, the Essenes were essentially monks, right? for lack of a better term. Uh, there are secular monks, sure. people who remove themselves from all of society for whatever they believe is a, mm-hmm. is a good and right reason. Uh, it exists famously now in Buddhism, and mm-hmm. right? It, it's not a Christian concept. No. And there are really three different ways— that this is done. There are the hermits, mm-hmm. the people who are like being away from everyone, except for this group of people that I live in a commune with is not away enough. I just don't want to be around people at all <laughs> right. because I love Jesus. <laughs> and so the hermits are one group entirely upon themselves. Yeah. Alone. Very limited interaction with other people. Mm-hmm. Then there are those who live in what we think of as the abbey and the, the, the monks gathered to do their corporate works and corporate worships and those kinds of things, removed from society at large for the sake of devotion to mm-hmm. worship. And then, then there are some that are sort of a hybrid of the two mm. that Augustine is going to really put to, put to the forefront as his preferred thing. It's just kind of small groups that come together for church mm. but sort of live as small groups kind of mm. a thing if you wanted to take a very modern church analogy and put it together right uh but but these are the the ways that monasticism took place mm-hmm. uh, and all of them are interesting in light of the great commission yes yeah how do you take the gospel to all nations when you have isolated yourself how do you like if the if the highest christian virtue and expression is to be love how do you do that Mm -hmm. in a place of isolation or even you know even if you're not in you're not a hermit so you're not entirely by yourself it's only within this small pocket of extremely like-minded people who all live in the same little commune together um yeah and, and to be fair 
they were doing things like medical care. Sure. Bringing oh, yeah. people in, offering medical care. Uh, some of the first hospitals are sort of later on formed from this kind of heart. They're doing evangelism. They're copying scriptures to make mm-hmm. sure that the church is equipped. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they are doing those things, but removing themselves in a, such a way so that the day-to-day contacts aren't there. I, I found this thing inside of one of my history textbooks that gives eight different motifs talked about by early monastics okay. about reasons why they saw this as a good thing, okay. which I, I find fascinating because I can't find reasons why this is a good thing. Right. Um, one of them, interestingly enough, militaristic. There was a, a military aspect of these people when, because I, I don't think we, we know much in the modern church about how militaristic Christianity has been at times. Sure. Uh, but there have been, not just the Crusades, but there have been campaigns by people that are like, hey, you know what? This dom- denomination of church doesn't like how that denomination is doing communion. We should probably attack them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so militaristic was was one of them. Martyrdom and the cult of martyrdom. Yeah. Uh, is is a reason is one of the main themes talked about in this monastic order. Mm-hmm. The cult of martyrdom at the beginnings of this is going to be more as a recognized thing because martyrdom has died away. Uh, but the elevation of that they they sort of saw this as that living sacrifice. Right. Right. Participating with the martyrs as we can mm-hmm. in a world where we don't have the opportunity to be physically martyred. Right. Make your life as painful as possible to show that you love Jesus. Yep. Spiritual warfare in the instance that demonic forces are very much a part of what's going on in the cities mm. and the temptations and everything that are there. So to be removed mm. from the influence of demonic force Mm. and temptation was a reason for going angelic force now this is something that surprised me okay because i never would have considered this but in luke jesus talks about like the angels Mm. not marrying or giving in marriage right which is where their understanding of celibacy comes from right that in an in heaven this is going to be the preferred way, the, the way that we will live mm-hmm. without need for intercourse or desire for. Mm-hmm. And so why not bring heaven to earth and just start that now? Right. Uh, so that's where celibacy in these monastic traditions begins. Interesting. Living like the angels. That's how we're going to live when we're in perfect fellowship with God. Why not start today? Hmm. Uh some inklings of Gnosticism. Sure. The, the physical world is dangerous. The spiritual world is good. Deny yourself entirely mm-hmm. of the physical world or as much as you can. Uh, so that's issue of self-denial, especially in some groups more than others. Right. Uh, the idea of philosophy, like you mm-hmm. said, mm-hmm. the way. The way should be hard because Jesus says it's going to be hard. And so the harder it is, the more it is as Jesus told us it would be. Right. Um, there's a lot of baptismal language entering into uh, the monastic order. It was a next level mm. of following of Christ, um, like a second baptism with mm-hmm. some groups. And the eschatological world. Mm-hmm. If we are going to eventually be all Christian Worshippers of God, living together in communion and worship with our God. Uh, if that's the way it's ultimately going to be for God's glory, why not do it? Also, do it today. Right. Don't don't wait. Uh, so those are some of the ideas behind why hmm. monastic order is seen to be or was seen to be um, something worth pursuing. Yeah, yeah, and and ultimately, although. Although the Christians who stay in the cities and in those kind of larger urban areas don't adopt that kind of isolationist expression of monasticism, it is elevated to an ideal, mm-hmm. right? So you now have you now have more and more prominent Christian leaders advocating for celibacy mm-hmm. and for other lifestyles that 
restrict. It's it's a asceticism, which interestingly enough, yep. the Bible actually warns against. Right. Um, which I, I always kind of blows my mind. Um, Define it, just because. We, uh, so, should de- we should define terms. Yeah. So, so asceticism is, is the idea of like of it's self denial essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just kind of self denial um, for the purpose of spiritual advancement or enlightenment or whatever. Like you just you need to just um, refuse the satisfaction of any of anything that you want. Right. And it's essentially just like making life as hard as possible as you can. Right. So it's, it's in your diet, it's in your exercise, it's in your living situation. It's in choosing not to have certain relationships. It's in, you know, whatever it is, whatever pleasure you might get from this world, just destroy it. Because it is either going to make you more pleasing before God Mm. or because it is going to, um, make you feel like you're doing more to prove your devotion, mm-hmm. right? That's that's the heart behind why these things come up and why faith and grace and the finished work of Christ are sometimes in our hearts not enough. We feel like we need to do more, and, and, th- and that's really, I think, the base behind asceticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I look at it this way. This is, this is the analogy that I use. God has gifted us not only with blessings and things to appreciate and enjoy in this world, Mm -hmm. but the capacity to enjoy, Mm -hmm. right? And the world created in all of its beauty and splendor, the rocks cry out Mm -hmm. the glory of their creator, Mm -hmm. right? So God not only blesses us with things that are expressions of his glory, but he blesses us with the capacity to enjoy these things. So you have a giver giving a gift to someone that they love. When I give a gift to in someone that I love, let's say my children, I want them to see that as a relational statement, mm-hmm. right? I gave you this because I love you and I thought about you. Mm-hmm. And I want them ultimately to see that as something that grows our relationship, that they're appreciative to the giver. Mm-hmm. But I also want them to enjoy the gift. Sure. Right? Like if they Now, granted, this can go to people like, well, yeah, but what if? Okay, so, yeah, what if? Mm-hmm. What if a person misuses it? Then they used it wrongly. Yeah. Then it's wrong. Yeah. That's why we say they misused it. Mm-hmm. Right? If, if my kid takes the gift and they just leave the room and lock themselves away with it, Mm-hmm. for years on end, mm-hmm. then yeah, that's not what I had in mind, mm-hmm. right? But also, I don't want them to just open the gift, fling it over their shoulder, come running to me and sit in my lap and never come back to it. Like, well, what was the point of the gift, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. I thought you would enjoy, I want you, I find joy in watching you enjoy the gift. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think it's different with God yeah. and the pleasures of this world, right? Mm-hmm. There are even times when he talks about pleasures given to us are simply for the purpose of making Mary the heart of men, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They are they are intended for pleasure. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so asceticism goes too far yeah. uh, in that. And, and why does it get elevated even amongst the people in the city? I think it's natural for us to go, I'm not going to do that. They're willing to do that. They say it's because they love God. They must love God better yeah. than I do. Yeah. Uh, because I'm not willing to do the thing that they're willing to do. Yeah. But, but in the long run, man, like this is, and I'm speaking from my perspective here, but in the long run, what all it does really is uh, increases opportunities for hypocrisy. You know why? Because sin is not external. Right. Sin is internal. Yeah. And wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like you want to talk about, like, so, like, the idea of, like, Okay, so let's talk about this whole celibacy thing. Like, we know for a fact that popes and bishops throughout history were like chronic adulterers. Mm-hmm. Like, like it was like a thing. Like, they had like a carousel of women brought to their beds. Right? We know even more recently in the the Roman Catholic tradition, just the 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 extent, the pervasive extent 
of the abuse of children, mm-hmm. especially young boys. It's like when you suppress what is natural and good, then it bubbles over in something that's even more like wicked and disgusting. And like, like, I don't know. I just, which, which is why me. Paul tells the church in Corinth, if you have the desire, those, those desires, then get married. Yeah. Because that's where those desires are yeah. rightly applied. Yeah. But within, but what happens as church history progresses is that you can, they don't allow eventually, it's, we're not there yet, but eventually they don't allow people to serve in certain functions unless they are celibate. Right. Unless they've proven their devotion to God yeah. by taking on these, mm-hmm. these virtues or these practices that are never mm-hmm. asked of us in scripture. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, deny many of the gifts that God gave us mm-hmm. to, that help us to better understand him and enjoy him. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a hard thing. Uh, and, and it exists even today, right? We, sure. we still have monastic orders and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the monastic orders grow, mm-hmm. not without challenge. Some people are going to challenge them, um, but it is a thing that becomes a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it, it becomes com- almost characteristic of part of church history. It's a, it's a continuous thing that it gets going and, and, and doesn't stop. And it kind of hits its full stride in the medieval period. I think, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think now it's not as, as common, at least within Christian circles or even Roman Catholic circles. Right. I, I think at this point, if you saw someone that was a monk, you'd be like, Whoa. Yeah. That's like going a, to a museum. That's a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about some folks. Okay. Because we got a long list of folks. We do. Yeah, we do. And this is going to take us from the middle 300s mm-hmm. to the middle 400s. Yeah, almost middle 400s. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Assuming we get through them all. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, and the reality is, is that for time's sake, we're not going to, we're not going to give enough attention to some of these people Mm -hmm. because there's a lot we could say, but there's just so many prominent, uh, Christian authors at this part, uh, this time in history. Uh, but first let's talk about John Chrysostom. I got a love hate for him. Okay. I really do. Okay. So I have, I have a commentary series that has, um, all the all the passages of scriptures, the passages of scripture are are divided up inside of this commentary series, and anything that an ancient church father would have written on is organized within that verse. They mm-hmm. reference it in a commentary or in a book. It's subcategorized here. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. John Chrysostom is just all over that thing. Mm-hmm. His commentaries on the scripture, it, it's not just what he says, it's how he says it. Right. Yeah, which he was is known for being eloquent, which is why he gets the nickname the Golden Mouth. Yeah, that's what Chrysostom means. Yeah, yeah, and so he's he's really he's devotionally brilliant for me when I'm studying a passage, and then I just read his take on it. I would say most of the time I just look at it and go, "Man, that was well said." Mm. There are a couple of people like that, mm-hmm. right? That I go to. I I like Chrysostom. Sometimes he's not saying a thing that I wasn't going to say, but he just says it better. Mm. Spurgeon. Yeah. Spurgeon says good morning, and you, the way he says it, you just go, wow, you're right. <laughs> it is a good morning. <laughs> that was so deep. <laughs> right, right. Right. So Chrysostom, Spurgeon, and Adam Clark all have this way of saying things mm-hmm. um, that are just fantastic, but that's, that's his good. Mm. He did a ton of writing. Contributed a lot to the understanding of the Eastern Church. Mm-hmm. But he also has some serious theological issues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What What's what particularly? My understanding is that as the cult of the martyrs is growing, mm-hmm. and this idea that martyrdom is the ultimate, mm-hmm. and short of martyrdom we have monasticism, this Catholic tradition of keeping blessed remnants like the robe of Paul. I don't even know if that's a thing, right? The Shroud of Turin, all of those kinds of things that that in the physical presence of these things by these great Christians 
God works more powerfully or the spirit moves in a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. He was kind of a forerunner and all of that. Oh yeah. That's my understanding. Yeah. Um, so if someone wants to be like full on classic church historian, be like, actually that was predated by, and Christensen just picked it up. <laughs> but I would say he wrote on it. Yeah. And I wish he hadn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I was doing some reading on him. There's a couple like quote, like there's a couple things he says, which are just like awesome. So he's talking, he's preaching and <laughs> he says, uh, talking about like referencing like chamber pots. <laughs> he says, do you pay such honor to your excrements as to receive them into silver chamber pot when another man made in the image of God is perishing in the cold? Like he just railed against greed, right? He's like, you're literally pooping into precious metals when people are starving outside. Um, or another one, he, he kind of goes off about how if you ask most Christians who Amos or Obadiah are, or if you could get them to like ask them how many apostles were there or whatever, they wouldn't know, but they could name all the drivers in the horse races and how that just drove. And you know what? That, that, that one is hit. So, that is so applicable. That one hit because uh, there's a lot of Christians that could name, uh, you know, a lot more quarterbacks, NFL quarterbacks than they could, uh, apostles, apostles, mm-hmm. or even books of the Bible <laughs> or whatever. I mean, not that that is the, you know, the, the definitive measure measurement or whatever, yeah. but like, but it's like, yeah, man, nothing new under the sun. He's just like, look, you guys know a whole lot about things that don't matter and not a whole lot about things that do. And I'm just like, and just to say the way he did is like, yeah, his it, comment, if you're, if you're ever hard. preaching through the gospel of John, or studying through the Gospel of John, Chrysostom on the Gospel of John, pow. I'll have to borrow your book then. Uh, next, we have someone named Ambrose. Uh, Ambrose has a interesting story. So Ambrose was a governor. Mm-hmm. Okay, he was a political governor uh, in Milan, which at, which at this point is a political center. Yes. Yeah. An important political center. Yeah. Kind of the, the regional capital for some areas in the kind of the uh, north of Italy. And um, he was a new Christian. And there's a succession crisis where the bishop had passed away. They need to elect a new one. There's division, again, between mm-hmm. Arians and Orthodox, right? Fighting each other over, you know, the, these two factions because this is still this is, going strong. This is that period. Yeah. And he shows up and they start proclaiming him as the next bishop. He hasn't even been baptized yet. (laughs) He's a new, he hasn't even been baptized. Like he's a Christian. He would call himself a believer, but he's a baby Christian, right? So he, he refuses. But then the emperor at the time, who is a personal friend Mm -hmm. of Ambrose Mm -hmm. is like, no, 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 you should just, you know, you should totally do it, man. Like, it's good. It's good. You'll be fine. So, so he does, he takes, he takes the role of bishop on, um, but to his credit, he he sells his land and gives the money to the poor. He sets a little aside for his sister to make sure she's taken care of. But apart from that, sells all his stuff, gives all the money away, and really doubles down, like really takes his role seriously. But I mean, he had to get bat- they had to baptize him the next week so he could become the bishop because he couldn't become bishop without being baptized. And so when all these other people are waiting years to yeah. be baptized. Can you imagine, like even on a much smaller level, like... If we were like hiring a pastor, you know, if a church is hiring a pastor, uh, especially at like a Baptist church and to be like, yeah, we should, we think, and some guy is like the mayor and you're like, you know what? You'd be a great pastor. And he'd be like, I just like, just started showing up to church a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Like, quick, get him baptized. <laughs> He's a great speaker. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I'd say two things to this one. Oh, I man. was in the process of hiring an associate pastor one time, and I, I really came down to two really great candidates, and I was very much torn. Mm-hmm. It was kind of 1A, 1B issue. Um, and so I made my decision, and I contacted the other guy, and he said, you know what, you've you got to know that I'm pretty upset about this. I was really looking forward to working with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've been offered multiple other jobs, but I've put them off hoping to get this one. And I said, well, what's the difference between this job and those jobs just out of curiosity? And he said, I've done 12 interviews and you're the only one who asked me if I was a Christian. Wow. <laughs> Everyone else just presumes. 
<laughs> but you asked me if I was a Christian and if I've been baptized. I thought, wow, wow that's interesting. Secondly, when people say, well, how did the Catholic Church go wrong? How did things go wrong? Mm-hmm. You look at Ambrose's situation, and you're like, good on Ambrose yeah. for diving into it. Yeah. But not everyone would. No, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> and not everyone does. Yeah, no. And so if you're waiting to understand the theological downfall of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. this is probably that moment where you go, oh, yeah, I see what's coming. Yeah, yeah. So, to again, to his credit... Hold on. Oh, hold sorry. On. I also want to say this. To make it worse, this isn't what we will see later about government-appointed bishops. Mm. Bishopship, bishopships being... Bishoprics. Pur- being purchased. Yeah. This is, this is the church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so... He he does write extensively. He's considered uh, what's what are called uh, the Latin doctors of the church, mm-hmm. which just essentially means uh, he was an early Western church guy who was super, super smart, <laughs> wrote a lot on theology, wrote a lot on philosophy. Christian ethics was huge. He was really wrote a lot on that. Um, one one cool thing that that I learned about him is one of the questions that would come up in the church is you kind of had slightly varying traditions um, in different parts of the empire, mm-hmm. right? So if you were in Rome, they would maybe fast on a particular day or do their order of service slightly different than in Carthage, than in Alexandria, than in Antioch, than wherever. And this was like really challenging for some people to navigate. And in fact, Ambrose, um, I believe to Augustine actually, cause Augustine's kind of wrestling with this. Uh, Ambrose is a, kind of a bit of a mentor. He, he proposes for, liturgical flexibility so what, what that means is the exact form of how things go or order of service mm-hmm. or whatever it is it's okay for there to be variation yeah, in that it's not scripturally defined when in rome do as the romans do that's ambrose and that's what he's talking about mm-hmm. he's saying when you're at a church in rome do what the roman churches do uh, don't get hung up on these difference these like non-important differences these are not differences with theological implications these are just matters of tradition and 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 culture and those sorts of things and uh and that was revolutionary first time yep because everyone just wanted to fight over like which day of the week you fasted on as though that matters so good talk about gregory gregory of we got seven minutes nisa nisa oh my goodness and we still have jerome uh gregory of nisa high points strong trinitarian um, Both of the Gregories are going to prove. Well, there's another yeah. Gregory coming along. Advocated yeah. for the the infinitude of God. God is limitless, um, which which he takes this like because God is without limit. Um, we can't fully know him, but in this life and in eternal life, we will come to know him to greater and greater degrees. And that will continue forever because God is limitless. Francis Chan does a brilliant explanation of this. With the rope? Uh, no, with the cup. Oh, he talks cup, about yeah. He talks about dipping a cup into the ocean. Mm-hmm. And he says, everything inside of that cup is genuinely ocean, truly and genuinely ocean, mm-hmm. and can be studied as such. But it is not the fullness of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And we are the cup. Mm-hmm. And God is the oceans mm-hmm. of this world. There is only so much of him that we can ever understand. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that what we understand is not truly God. Yeah. And I think I think that that is a brilliant way of wrapping our heads around the things we can't wrap our heads around. Yeah. No, that's that's awesome. And la- yeah. One last thing which I, I, I like about Gregory of Nyssa, essentially the first major Christian writer to explicitly condemn slavery in all its forms. Nice. It's inherently sinful. Uh, he uses the example of God freeing us from the slavery of sin to demonstrate that slavery goes against God's design for human beings. We were not created to be enslaved. Nice. Enslavement on the spiritual level or on the physical level is wrong. And he's like 1,500 years ahead of his time. <laughs> right. So good on him. Um, Jerome. Jerome. Can you do Jerome in six and a half minutes, five and a half minutes? I can try. You because just, Jerome does a lot. Just okay, interject whenever you want. I uh 
Travel to Rome as a young man to pursue rhetoric. I mean, essentially all these guys did. Public yep. speaking was like the highest aim um, for a young person in the Roman Empire this time. Uh, was a partied hard as a student. Nothing new. Go to university and, yep. and get caught up in that. Um, went to live in the desert for a little while. Again, a lot of these guys did that. When you he, know, he, he seems like the kind of guy who really loves the concept of monasticism, mm-hmm. even to the point of being a hermit. Yeah. But he just, he likes the idea, mm. but he never sticks with it. No, he comes back to Rome. So he spends a little bit of time in the desert, but and, he comes back to Rome. And it also seems like for all the good he does on the, this is a football reference, for all the good he does on the field, mm. he's not good to have in the locker room. <laughs> <laughs> because he does amazing things. Oh, yeah. Uh, yet at the same time, the reason he leaves his first stint as a hermit is because the other hermits, now keeping in mind, a hermit is someone who lives on their own. But there would be a place where people would go to live on their own. The other hermits are done with him. Yeah. <laughs> they can't stand him because he's got a bad attitude. Yeah. And so if, if hermits run you off yeah. because they don't want to co-hermit with you in the same region, right? you're probably putting out vibes that need to be corrected. <laughs> yeah. So what, Okay. So the greatest work that he did was translating the Bible into Latin the vulgate yeah so it wasn't quite the vul- well it wasn't it wasn't the vulgate it's a that's a, it whatever. becomes the vulgate. it becomes the vulgate yeah so first you translate the new testament from greek to latin that's not that crazy greek nope. and latin are very similar languages greek and latin were spoken fluently by the educated class of the roman empire for hundreds of years and in portions had been already done by yeah some. it'd be like going from like french to spanish like they're very mm-hmm. similar languages the grammar is very similar Right. Then he moves on to the Old Testament and he actually goes to Jerusalem to improve his Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And he translates the Old Testament up to that point. It had usually been they'd use the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation. We talked about it a little bit in one of our earlier podcasts uh, a long time ago. Yeah. So so basically the way the Septuagint comes around is after the Old Testament Jews are dispersed, Mm. From the promised land, the use of Hebrew becomes not a primary language for many of them. Yeah. And they start speaking Greek because Alexander requires it. Uh, And in some of these far-flung regions, uh, it is the common language. And so the scriptures are translated Mm -hmm. into Greek as a common language. And when Jesus is walking the earth, it is as common. The Septuagint was, in most cases, probably what was being read in the synagogue. Yeah. And not the Hebrew text. And yeah. so a lot of times people like to get hung up and they're like, well, these guys were Jews and early on they should be speaking Hebrew and not Greek. No, nope. yeah. not the case. They were reading the Old Testament in Greek. They were speaking Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why the Bible is originally written in Greek. and uh, Or the New Testament originally. The New Testament originally written in Greek. And, yep. and for him to skip the Greek and go back to the Hebrew... It's a really big deal. Yeah, it's a and and not easy. Um, and a lot of people kind of warned him against it, but he wanted to. He wanted to do that. Um, he kind of makes the distinguishment between the Hebrew canon and the apocrypha. Um, yeah, I mean, he does some good things. His one of the things for him is he saw the fall of Rome coming. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of one of these. The fall of Rome is a car accident in slow motion is what it yep. is. Yep. And so he sees it coming and he was gr- it greatly influenced his eschatology because he believed that the fall of Rome would trigger the rise of the Antichrist and that this these things were to happen soon mm-hmm. um, after kind of a shattering of the Roman Empire. Didn't play out exactly that way, um, but uh, but Jerome would see some tough times. And Rome would see some tough times in his lifetime. And, and again, as we keep saying it, but we're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. He he does a lot of writings on topics mm. that become staples for the Catholic Church. So in the mm. same way, his translation of the scripture becomes the Catholic Bible mm-hmm. that is that is known and used. Uh, he has he writes against um, Helvidius because Helvidius denied the perpetual virginity of Mary. Interesting. Which was kind of a rising thing. Jerome says, no, that can't be the case. Jerome writes against it. It becomes the accepted doctrine of hmm. the Catholic Church. Hmm. Uh, Jovinian 
denied monasticism as a superior Christian life. Mm-hmm. Jerome said, no way. These guys are the all-stars, and the rest of you are all— Even though they kicked me out. <laughs> the, rest of, <laughs> the rest of you are all junior varsity. <laughs> right, right, right. And, uh, and it becomes the practice of the church. Right, right. Uh, Vigilantius denies the cult of martyrs as a superior uh, means of worship. Mm-hmm. And Jerome says, not a chance. Uh, and Rufinus, who supported Origen's orthodoxy. And uh, mm-hmm. Jerome says, no, not going to be the case. Uh, and Pelagius, who supported the possibility of human perfection. We're going to talk a lot about Pelagius in the future, so don't we get are. too hung up on Pelagius. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, probably next week. Probably. Um, but he denies Pelagius. Mm-hmm. and also becomes a position of the church. So I would say for better and worse, if Jerome writes about it, the Catholic Church practices it even today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he's not afraid to go toe-to-toe with all sorts of folks. But that's, right. that's our Jerome. <laughs> <laughs> I identify with that a little bit, actually. So Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What about the perpetual virginity of Mary? No, not a chance. Okay. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. Take care.